The pastor of an inner city church was once asked, this was in the 90s, he lived in Chicago, but he was asked, why is your church thriving? Why are you doing so many great things for God in spite of all the the odds? And the response that he gave really gets at the heart of what I want to communicate here today. This is what he said. He said, simple, I just tell people who they are, chosen by God, his children, his priests. I don't shame them for what they are not. I tell them who they are. And I think that's so profound. There are two fundamentally different ways to address the deficiencies that you find in the church. And every church, including this one, in case you haven't noticed, has deficiencies and blind spots. But one, one option is to shame people and show uh, graceless and, and give graceless critique and criticism. But shame never motivates people to do great things. Shame never causes permanent, lasting spiritual fruit. At best, shame gives people this, this thought, well, I want to try not to mess up too awfully bad. The other option, and that's what this inner city pastor is, is advocating, the other option is to focus on who we are, what is actually true about us in Christ. And, and interestingly, when we see our, our identity in Christ and we believe it, we also see our deficiencies. The contrast just becomes obvious. We see our deficiencies and in our identity, we see the way forward. We see how the death and resurrection of Jesus allows us to address those deficiencies because his death and resurrection accomplished everything. And so instead of being ashamed and demoralized, we come alive and we see what we should be. And we're talking about all this in the context of our our making room effort. We're studying some of the main images that the New Testament uses to describe the church. And we're looking at, at these images because they reveal our identity. They tell us the type of people that we should be. And as we've been discussing, the spaces we're designing, the spaces we're renovating are meant to facilitate this identity and meant to, for us to live it out in that context. Now, we're actually not a building-centered church. Uh, most of the gatherings that we sponsor here at Faith happen outside the walls of the church. About 300 of you meet in life groups that, that meet primarily in homes throughout the week. Uh, many of the rest of others of you are involved in, in groups with campus ministries or other Bible studies. And so most of what happens through this church and in this church happens outside the walls. Uh, And yet some things happen best inside the walls, like a gathering like this. We worship. We we need a place to worship and pray and hear the word. Uh, Some of of you have told us that you really are not available during the week for life groups. You you connect with people best on Sunday mornings, and so we've reintroduced groups on Sunday morning. We have recovery groups that meet best in the building. What we've seen on the video, we have kids, uh, youth, uh, groups that, that, uh, that meet best in a building like this. And so we're talking about the type of church we need to be if we're going to use these spaces well. Two weeks ago, we dis- discussed our identity as a family of God. And the emphasis is we need to think and act like a healthy family. Last week, we talked about being the body of Christ. And the emphasis there is our interdependence. We, we need each other. We, none of us are superior or inferior. We all need to play our part so that together the body is healthy. 
And today we're going to look at a, an aspect of our identity that stresses our exalted status before God. And the term I'm about to use may or may not mean anything to you. Today we're going to see that we are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. And if we get this, if we really start thinking as a royal priesthood, we will see that even the details of our lives give opportunities to please the heart of God. We'll think a lot less in terms of not messing up, and we'll think in terms of what can I give to God that would delight him. It's a very different perspective that that's what we're going to talk about today. If you are able, I would ask you to stand as I read our passage. It's 1 Peter 2. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2. And Peter's just mentioned how if you're a believer, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and of, of the Lord Jesus. He says this, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You can be seated. Well, let's first consider the significance of being a royal priesthood. And what this points to, and we'll explain it, is that we have an exalted status and we have free and full access to God himself. In verses 4 and 5, Peter paints uh, the portrait of a of church that's both a spiritual temple and a priesthood. The New Testament writers had no trouble mixing metaphors or changing metaphors in the middle of a sentence. And so we're, we're both a temple and a priesthood. Of course, the Old Testament uh, stipulated a temple. In, in Jerusalem, they were to build a temple out of stones. They were to stack them one upon the other. And this magnificent temple that they built was a place where they would come and offer sacrifices to God. It was a place where the priest would represent the people before God. It's a place where God would manifest his presence, his glory. In the New Covenant, we are all, God is also building a temple, but it's a spiritual temple. A spiritual house made of living stones. And Jesus himself is, the fir- is first and foremost the most important living stone. Down in verse 7, Peter makes an allusion to Psalm 118, which is applied to the Messiah. And Jesus is depicted as a stone which the builders rejected. It's like Jesus came to Jerusalem and they threw him away. They discarded him, unusable. 
But God took that stone, Jesus, the cornerstone, and on that rock, he built his church. He built this, this temple. And the temple is the place where God manifests his presence in us and among us and the place where sacrifices are brought. What kind of a temple would we be if we didn't bring sacrifices? And so again, Peter says this in verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of a priesthood. And that may be strange to your ears. Another way to say it is that you are a priest. And it's kind of unfortunate that, that the idea of being a priest in some segments of the body of Christ is an elite status. Only a very few people uh, have that status. But in, in Scripture, in the New Testament, if you're a follower of Christ, you are a priest before God. And the fundamental idea there is that you have full access to come into the very presence of God. And if you've been a believer or you've been a church person for a long time, that may be kind of old hat to you. Yeah, yeah, I know I can pray. I can turn to God. Yeah, tell me something new. But, but understand how this would have been heard in the first century. In the old covenant, a very select number of males could be priests, and only one of them was the high priest, and he couldn't just march into the, the inner sanctuary whenever he wanted. He could only go once a year. So what Peter is saying is that one priest, this, this high priest, because we're in Jesus Christ, we have that access all the time. We have this freedom because, of, because Jesus is in the presence of God and we are in Christ. We are in the presence of God. We have this access, this freedom to him. And so we too, as a holy priesthood, we reflect the holiness of our father. Be holy, God says, for I am holy. We reflect the, the holiness of our great high priest. He's a holy and great high priest. We find that in Hebrews 7.26. We reflect the holiness of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter was saying this to simple farmers and slaves. He was telling them, your status, your spiritual status, isn't any way related to your status in society. Your status is related to the status of Jesus. He's in the presence of God. He has free, full access. You're in him. You do too. Look down in verse 9. Peter adds another adjective. We're not only a holy priesthood. He says we're a royal priesthood. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And so the, the, the idea that we're a royal priesthood, that was suggested back in to, of Israel back in Exodus 19.6. Israel was called a kingdom of priests. And what we find in the New Testament is that what was supposed to be true of Israel is actually, literally, absolutely true of all followers of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the thing about royalty in Israel, at least, was that it was inherited. If you weren't born into a royal family, you had no shot at it, really. And so it was just too fantastic for your average person to, to think that he or she could ever be royalty. And yet Peter tells us that as believers, we are a royal priesthood. Another way to say it, we are now part of God's ruling class. Jesus is king. We are part of a royal priesthood under Jesus. And so even though 
In this world, we're often confused and sinful, and we feel so needy. We are royalty, and we should bring that royalty to our priesthood. We should think like royalty. Jesus is king. I know Jesus. I'm raised up and seated with Christ. I am to represent him in this world. I am to do the work of a priest. That's my identity. That's my calling in Christ. When we think about the application of being a a royal priesthood, uh, the idea is very simple. We are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Uh, We do what priests do. Priests bring sacrifices. And so this is what we read again in verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, of course, there's no more a need for animal sacrifices. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. He died as our, our substitute on the cross. So we now bring spiritual sacrifices, meaning sacrifices that bear the mark of the Holy Spirit. And when you read the word spiritual in the New Testament, it almost always refers to what the Holy Spirit does. And in our culture, anything can be spiritual. You can have a spiritual leader of a baseball team, or you can have your truck can be spiritual. Anything can be spiritual. But spiritual sacrifices are those that bear the mark of the Holy Spirit. And these spiritual sacrifices... Peter says here, they have the capacity to be acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so when you think as a priest, you think, I'm going to offer something to God that he loves, something he delights in, something in which he finds great, great pleasure. So the goal of my life is not not messing up as a royal priesthood. The goal of my life is to bring God sacrifices that bring him great pleasure great satisfaction. And this is an identity that we have to take seriously. I don't know if you think in these terms just day in and day out. I normally don't, honestly. But we need to take it as seriously as the priests in the Old Testament were supposed to. Unfortunately, they often didn't take this identity seriously. So read the book of Malachi sometime. You'll find that that, uh, the priests in that day, uh, they were bored. They were just going through the motions. It was tiresome to them to bring sacrifices to God. So they brought their leftovers. They brought animals that they didn't want, blind, lame, diseased animals. They brought God their leftovers, not their first fruits. The sobering thing was they didn't even realize it. They didn't know anything was wrong with it. So when Malachi confronted them, they said, what? (laughs) We're bringing sacrifices. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can live our lives in an oblivious way and not ever realize that God is examining the quality of our sacrifices. We're a royal priesthood. We're supposed to bring sacrifices that bless his heart, sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But when we embrace that identity, we we will see things differently. We will see the details of our lives as an opportunity to bring pleasure to the heart of God. And honestly, sometimes our our spiritual ambitions are just far too too modest. uh, But we need to think like royalty. We need to think 
like we are a royal priesthood, bring the very best spiritual sacrifices that we possibly can. And it's true of all the ministries of faith, those that happen outside the walls of the church, those that happen within. It should be true in all of our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplace, in everything we do, everywhere we go. Well, you may have noticed that Peter didn't spell it out. This is exactly what I'm talking about when I say spiritual sacrifices. And that, that lack of definition, I think, just opens the gate wide up. It can meet anything in our lives. And so to, to spark your thinking, I want to I mention three types of spiritual sacrifices that are mentioned in Scripture. But this is representative. It's not exhaustive. But the first one's found down in verse 9, and it mentions our speech, the things that we say, the conversations that we have. They can be a sacrifice to God. He says, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So to proclaim or to declare simply means to speak. And so what it means is as a royal priesthood, the excellences of God, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his holiness, all of these things should infuse the things that we say. We're to give him these sacrifices of speech that declare the excellencies of God. We've experienced God's excellencies. We've been taken out of darkness and we've been put in the, into the light. And because we've experienced that, we have something to say. It should show up in the way that we talk. If a relationship with God really is the best thing that we could ever experience, that's not just a spiritual cliche, <laughs> it should show up in the way we talk. Whatever you're most excited about, what you were the most passionate about, it always shows up in your speech. That should be the case when it comes to our God, to our Savior. And so think about the implications with me. Think about, since we're, we're thinking about this making room effort, think about what should happen in the classes that take place, in the teaching times that take place, uh, here on Sunday mornings or at other times during the week. So if you're a teacher, so if you teach adults, or if you teach high schoolers or middle schoolers, or you teach children, you should teach like a royal priesthood. You should teach with this mindset says, as a member of a royal priesthood, I want my words to be a spiritual sacrifice. I want them to be acceptable to God. I want to declare, to state how excellent God is because God has taken me out of darkness and put me into the light. I want God to delight in what I say and how I say it. And so if you're a teacher, you have to experience the excellence of God if you're going to declare the excellence in what you say. You can't give away something that you don't have, that you don't experience. And what is true of teachers, of course, we want, want to be true of everyone who's participating. And so when you come to a class, when you come to, to hear the word, don't come passively. Don't come, don't come uh, uh, with that mindset. But as you experience the excellences of God, you should talk about him as well. Children, youth, adults, we should all be experiencing the mercy and kindness of God to such a degree where it infuses the things we say and how we say it. And so here's my question for you. Somebody 
could magically follow you around and they listened and they heard everything you said this past week or this past month, what would they conclude about your relationship with God? Would they conclude, now that guy, that guy is absolutely enamored with God. He thinks he is far and away the best one in the world. Or would somebody conclude, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure they're very interested in God, honestly. And it's not just using, I'm not just talking about using a lot of biblical words and spiritual talk. I'm talking about what, what do you exude with your life? And our mouth speaks whatever fills our hearts. And that's a challenging question, right? And you might be thinking, well, if you knew how hard my life is right now, uh, you might not expect that from me. Well, interestingly, I'm glad you brought it up. I, uh, a couple weeks ago in my normal Bible reading time, I read Job 1. And at the end of Job 1, it just blew me away. After Job had lost his entire, all of his kids, everybody but his wife, and he had lost all his wealth. You remember what Job said? He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the last line is, in all these things, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. Here's a man in the midst of his pain, he declared the excellencies of God. And I have to believe that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, that when we declare the excellencies of God, God is still good. God is still everything we know him to be. In the midst of our pain, I I suspect those sacrifices are especially tender to the heart of God. I want to mention a couple of others in Hebrews chapter 13 we read this he says through him through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and so again very consistently a sacrifice is always offered to God through Jesus Christ And so worship, as you know, is not merely something that happens once a week in this room. Uh, But since we are a royal priesthood all week long, we should offer a sacrifice of praise all week long. At the same time, we should definitely offer a sacrifice of praise when we gather for corporate worship. And so if we enter into this space and into this place with a mindset, I am a part of a royal priesthood. God is noticing here today the type of sacrifice I'm bringing him, how I sing, how I express my my heart to God, how I receive the word, how I pray, then it will change the way we worship. And, And I absolutely realize some of us are more expressive than others in worship. And I, I've heard people say, I'm, I'm just not into singing. And I don't really get that because that, that's, not, I've ne- that's never been my mindset, but I can actually accept that. It's okay if you're really not into singing. It is not okay if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You can't say, I'm not really into worship. You have to declare God's worth, declare his excellency. He notices what you're bringing him here today. And so I would just encourage you, when you come into this place, bring God your best. When you sing, when you give, when you pray, when you interact with others, bring this sacrifice of praise. 
And it's a very different mindset. You're not saying, well, I have to worship today. You're saying, I get to offer God something that might delight his soul. The last thing I'll mention is, is good deeds and sharing. We find that in the next verse, Hebrews 13, 16. The author says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for which such sacrifices God is pleased. You and I, daily we have opportunities to do good and to share. And I could, I could, I could give dozens of examples of how different ones of you do this. And it's an offering. It's a sacrifice to God. You don't have, you don't have to say, you know, view your good deeds as some, some burden, some obligation. I know many of you, you say, this is an opportunity to show people the love of Christ. And so it's, it's, it's genuinely a sacrifice with which God is pleased. I want to mention a couple of examples that take place here at, at the building. A recovery ministry, what, what spiritual sacrifices are offered up through that ministry? I am blown away at what God has raised up here at Faith. There are teams of people who are so full of compassion that they don't just say, well, I just want to take care of me and mine. No, I want to come alongside others. Most of the time, it's people they've never met. I want to walk with them through a difficult time. That is doing good. That is sharing in a way that brings joy to the heart of God. I want to give you an example for our middle schoolers that currently meet in the south wing that will move up to the north wing when we build the addition. But a few weeks ago, they were presented with a, a, a reality, what takes place in, in the foster care system in, uh, in our country. And apparently what often happens is when a kid is removed from a home, that kid is handed two trash bags. And they're, said, they're, they're told, put as many possessions as you can fit in those trash bags. That's what you can take with you. There's an organization that's been raised up. It's called Together We Rise, and they're committed to the dignity of these kids and, and uh, encouraging them in their lives. And so they've started making these things. They call them sweet cases. They're these duffel bags that contain hygiene kits and toys and, and blankets. And so kids, when they're, they're being removed from their home, they're given these sweet cases, and it, it's just a better way for them to, to pack up their belongings. And so this need was presented to our middle schoolers, and they, on their own, because it touched their hearts, they said, we want to be part of this. We want to raise money. They're trying to provide 25 of these, these sweet cases. And so you'll hear more about it, but they're having a child care night where you can come if you've got kids and leave your kids and have an evening out, and any contributions you make will go toward this effort. And, uh, and, I, and I just love that. I think that's a sacrifice that, uh, of doing good and sharing. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing the author had in mind when he said, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so these are just examples. This week, when you pray, pray as a royal priest as you have conversations, as you worship God, as you read the word, as you live your life, as you interact with your neighbors and with your family and with your coworkers. Remember, I can offer God something here, God something that maybe nobody else will see, nobody else will know my motives, but to God, it's a sacrifice and it delights his heart. We have that capacity in Christ Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would empower us to, be, to, to live out this identity. God, what an amazing thing you've done in making us to be a royal priesthood. 
God, we ask that we would live out this identity with great joy, uh, great energy, great creativity. God, we pray that this week you will fill our minds with thoughts of how we can offer you sacrifices. God, we do, do not want to stumble through this life oblivious to what we're offering you. God, teach us to think less of ourselves and more of you. God, teach us to look past our circumstances and to see the spiritual realities. You have placed us where we are this time in history for your purposes. And so, God, we want to live out our calling faithfully in Christ Jesus. And God, remind us that that you can be delighted. You take great pleasure in the things that we offer you. And so, God, may we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.